Hold on. That... Do, we want, do we want to go down this route? No. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome back to A Pint of Interest, the podcast dedicated to people, politics and pints with me, Lewis Brackpool. And me, Oscar Holdway-Lopez. My token is Spaniel, mate. And today we are excited to welcome our special guest, the Baroness Claire Fox. Baroness Claire Fox is a writer, journalist and politician. She's the director and founder of the Academy for Ideas, and in 2019, she successfully stood as a candidate for the Brexit party and became a member of the European Parliament. Since then, the Prime Minister has nominated her for the House of Lords, where she sits. We have an exciting show today where we will be talking about the Ollie Robinson tweets. Stay tuned. So, Oscar, it has been a long time, hasn't it? Too long, mate. I can see you're smiling. I know obviously the the listeners won't be able to see that, but you're smiling and ready to go for the woke of the week. You ready? Can't wait for what you've got for me, mate. Okay, right. So let's read this out. Metropolitan Police Chief Cresta Dick calls for law to favour minority recruits. Yeah. The silence says it all. No, I was just thinking because I have read that one before. Yeah. <laughs> and okay. honestly, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was against the law to do that for a start. No, it's... <laughs> favoring people based on skin colour. But go on, what's your what's your what's your view on that? Well the th- the thing about it is is ten years ago, the sort of jokes we were all making about how society would end up, like, oh yeah, eventually, you know ethnic minorities are going to have the upper hand and mm-hmm. and, and eventually um you know you can't say you mother you've got to mm-hmm. say person that gives birth to someone all of these things that people thought were just incredibly ridiculous yeah they've all turned out to be true mm. and they've all turned out to actually have happened and this is just one of the sort of occurrences of that but i mean we all know that you know was it cressida dick Cressida Dick, yeah. Cressida Dick. Funny name. We all know that Cressida Dick isn't exactly particularly competent uh, at her job. Well, it should be Cressida Cock, really, not Dick. (laughs) But um, uh, just continuing on with the article, it says, Britain's most senior police officer wants to apply a form of positive discrimination to recruitment to increase ethnic minority recruits uh, and has called for a change in the law to allow the force to favour ethnic minority candidates when they are equally qualified to white applicants. So it is racism. It's, it's literally racism. The problem is, I see, is that they're not putting the focus in the right areas. As we know, London, in my opinion, is a shithole, uh, most of it. And there is rampant crime under Sadiq Khan's London. And the priority now is just to increase or to favor people who aren't white and you're like well come on like it's not about that it's about tackling the crime isn't it well the first the first thing i'd say which i found quite amusing was the way that she said um positive discrimination oh yeah there is no such thing as positive no. discrimination. there's only this just because you put the word positive in front of it does not make mm. the thing 
that's following on from that a good thing, right? Mm. That's never, ever, there's never the case. Yeah. So by saying positive discrimination, what she wants to say is that, you know, it's a disc- form of discrimination which is socially acceptable because, you know, the ends justify the means, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, this is nonsense because by the way she's going, what she wants is um, ethnic proportions of people in certain jobs. That's an incredibly dangerous way of looking at life. It is. So what are we going to do next? Are we, the England football team, which mm-hmm. is a high representation of black and minority ethnic people in it than the population of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Are we then, we're just going to like have, you know, racial groups, certain type of racial groups can enter and certain can't because it's all got to be yeah. in proportion. Yeah. Well, it's a form of segregation. It's what are you going to call it? Positive segregation. No, it, it, this is the thing. Yeah. It's it's completely insane and it can work either way. Like you, you can do it anyway you can discriminate against any race any ethnicity but all of it is still discrimination like there is no two ways about it and the other thing i'd say about this is apart from the fact that it's batshit crazy mm-hmm. if you're going for such an important job or you are you know the, the head of such an important role yeah in this country and you're currently failing at what you're trying to do which is get crime down yeah and you currently you've got people stabbing themselves or stabbing people all round the capital yeah surely you think right what will help me is to try and get the best possible people in this job yeah to actually help my situation but no it all has to be it all has to be your race your gender and your sexual orientation that's always going it's it's revolved around identity politics robert peel would be turning in his grave right now seeing all this nonsense. Well, so he really Martin, would. Martin, so would Martin Luther King. Yeah, he would. All of them. Do you know what I mean? It's uh... it out. <laughs> all of them. But yeah, I I just I just think it's it is as most normal people would see up and down the country. It's completely insane. But it also does represent to some extent how London sort of sees itself and how it's governed as opposed to the rest of the country because the rest of well, the they're country... their own body now they're in their own bubble and we've always said that there was such thing as a london bubble where they just do their own thing it's like this champagne socialist liberal elite that just think that they know better than the rest of the country it and doesn't everyone matter. else has it it extremist views it doesn't matter that crime is going up mm. as long as we're diverse while it's going up yeah that's the, that's the key it's all about diversity and inclusivity well, I call for Cressida Dick to get the sack for being racist and having a shit barnet. So, <laughs> so it's Newsweek, Oscar. It's a very exciting. We've got a lot to get through, uh, both intertwined with the subject. But the first one I wanted to talk about was Ollie Robinson and the tweets that he made 10 years ago. This seems to be a reoccurring theme now where someone will put something up 10 years ago, 15 years ago, a long time ago, um, back when their views obviously were a lot different or maybe even they just put up something silly. And it comes back to haunt them in today's society where people will just get cancelled for absolutely anything that people put out. First of all, I wanted to get your opinion on whether he should have been cancelled or not. So take it away, Oscar. So with the Ollie Robinson thing, as you can probably guess i do have some views on this i think it's absolutely insane what has happened mm-hmm. to this young man he was playing his debut for his country 
he was playing, you know, the, the sport he loves. He was doing what he loves doing. And while he was playing, these tweets of him, of I think it was nine years ago or mm-hmm. eight years ten. ago, ten years ago, they got released. Oh, so it might have been eight or nine, but still. They got released into the public eye for everyone to see them and everyone to sort of judge him for, you know, saying some silly things when the bloke was 18. I mean, it is mm. so ridiculous. It's yeah. so ridiculous. Well, it's as if the people that have made that decision, and I include Joe Root, and I include all the England set up, the, the selectors and all of that, the people that have uh, made that decision have never made a mistake in their life. No. Because we all know that they have. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is theirs haven't been uncovered. The yeah. arrogance of these people to just say, oh, well, Yours has been uncovered, so we're just going to cancel you. But mine mm-hmm. haven't been unco- uncovered. And what I've done in the past or said in the past hasn't been uncovered. So, you know, I can sit here and carry on doing my job. The pure arrogance of them to do that, I think it's sickening. And I also think it's sickening of the England team not to actually stand up for Ollie Robinson throughout this whole thing. Because at the end of the day, they're teammates and it's a sporting environment. And you have to stand up for your teammates if you want to win competitively. Yeah. Um, so add to that. It's created a sort of an eggshell society now where technology has been rapidly advancing. And we're now all walking on eggshells where anyone could find or dig up something of your past that you've made 10 years ago, however many years ago, which you don't necessarily agree with now or you completely disagree with now, but you don't have the moral or the the right, in fact, to defend yourself. Now, apologizing to the mob doesn't do anything. We all know that. So for Ollie Robinson to get up and apologize, I don't think was right. I don't think he should have apologized at all for something that he done. Yeah. However many years ago, he clearly doesn't think like that now. Okay. That's the, that's the main, that's the main grip of things. Hang on, there's, there's, an, impo- there's an important point here to say though, because we say, oh, he doesn't think like that now. I have no doubts. I don't think he thought like that before. No. They were stupid, immature comments. He should not have said them. They were awful comments to make. But everyone's made stupid comments. That doesn't define you as a person. Yeah. Right? It doesn't. You know, there's so many people saying, oh, he doesn't think like that. Has Has he learned from his views from before? I very much doubt those are his views. He was an 18-year-old guy. And by the way, Twitter 10 years ago is not what Twitter is now. Twitter no. 10 years ago was you were there with your mates talking and it was almost, it's a bit more, it was a bit more like Facebook or a sort yeah. of group chat sort of environment. It was more closed off. Now it's massive, you know. Well, so- it's, it's the case now, Oscar. Comedians that made jokes on stage 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where political correctness wasn't really prominent. And theatre directors and actors and comedians and anyone can push forward on their performance but not receive any backlash. So so what is it now? That's why I say it's an eggshell society now because these people are, are running... They're, they're walking on eggshells completely. They're, they're in fear of having their livelihoods and their careers destroyed over, what, a few Twitter activists snitching i just i don't agree with it i just i really don't agree with it doesn't matter how horrific you say something 
there is context. There always is context. If you can really see that it was a joke or it wasn't serious, I mean, this is this is the world we live in now. This is the dark doomsday world we live in where you cannot even make a joke without someone taking it completely out of context. And also what they're doing now, I don't know if you've seen, but because of these tweets, they're also looking at other tweets of people in in the yeah. in this and they're looking at some of the tweets or it's messages like an investigation when they were 15 years old 15 uh, yeah three years before and they were an adult the argument is that you know oh just because you're young it's not excusable i mean oscar what was your viewpoint on um on, on lots of subjects that we talk about now five years ago it's, I mean, it's probably different it's it's different, isn't it? Because your your views develop. You understand what you can and can't say. You understand that pushing the boundaries is not necessarily the right thing to do. It's part of free speech. It's part of developing and growing. You say some really controversial things to test the waters with people. It's it's part of conversation. So when people say, "Oh yeah, it doesn't excuse you," because when you were young, no, when we were young. We would say the most outrageous things. I mean, I used to. I'm sure you used to as well. Say outrageous things to try and test the waters. It doesn't excuse what you say, but you learn. You learn at the time. You learn that it was wrong. You don't let that manifest for 10 years or eight years or five years for someone to come in and go, you know what? Um, He said this five years ago. That's inexcusable. Or eight years ago, 10 years ago. That's inexcusable. We're, we're going to destroy your career that you've built, that you've taken time out to do. That's wrong. That's completely wrong because these people that sat there and trolled through Twitter to try and find these tweets to ruin this man's life are just sitting there scot-free and think that they've achieved some sort of justice, which they haven't. They're just in this vacuous doomsday world that they live in. And it, it makes me angry and it makes me really upset and feel bad for these people. He's now um, taking time back from, from cricket. He's taking time off from cricket now. Yeah, that's it's, unbelievable. It's so that's sad. That's insane. But it's sad that the mob have got to a stage where this is a literal cancellation of someone for something yeah. they've said 10 years ago. And as I'll repeat it again, because it's such an important point, is that no matter who you are, no matter what your views are, no matter how woke or left-wing you are, yeah. The nature of cancel culture is that it will come for you because yeah. humans, believe it or not, we're all imperfect. We are. We say stupid, shitty things at times. Mm-hmm. All of us. Yeah. I don't care whether you're left wing, right wing, whether you're a libertarian or an authoritarian. I don't care. Everyone says really stupid things, Correct. especially when they're 15 or 16. Yeah. The difference here is that Joe Root and and anyone else who you know hasn't been caught yet because in their past you've obviously said stupid things, is that they haven't had what they've said, their stupid comments, out in public. And they think it's okay to go and punish someone else for making similar mistakes that they clearly would have made in their past because everyone does stupid things in their past. If some of the stuff that you know Joe Root would have done or, or anyone else would have done or Ben Stokes, or, if that all would have come out into the, into the public everything about their personal life, every everything they've ever said, they'd be completely screwed. Completely. completely. But they think they have the right, just because one little thing has come out in public, they think they have the right to go and ruin someone else's life. And that yeah. is coming from 
that's a teammate of yours. That is one of your teammates and you're trying to go and ruin their life. And I also, one more point on this, I saw someone say that it was the England selector's fault because they didn't do their, they didn't do their research. And I listened to it, you know, and at the start you think, okay, they didn't do their research. I mean, how good is the bloke at cricket? You know, that's really the, the, the way you think about a cricketer. No, they didn't do their research because they didn't go through everything he's ever said on social media. Unbelievable. Everything that could be constrained is, is, is controversial. And because of that, it's their fault. The whole thing, I'm sorry, is complete bollocks. And now we're welcoming in Claire Fox with us. How are you doing, Claire? Are you well? Very well, thank you. Good stuff. Good stuff. Glad to have you on with us. It's been it's been very exciting. We've been very excited all day to have you on. So we wanted to start with your viewpoints and we wanted to understand a bit more about your development um, in terms of your political spectrum. So um, where do you sit politically and could you give us a big overview on wh- and where you sit? <laughs> well, I, I was I, I consider myself to be on the left. But it's just that these days that term means so little or it's very different to its historic sense, because a lot of the people who now consider themselves on the left, I disagree with profoundly. And it it, it does make it awkward. But I, I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't vote for the Tories. I'm not a traditional right winger. And I was involved in the Revolutionary Communist Party for many years. But, you know, that closed down at, at mid-1990s or end of the 1990s. So, you know, I, I've not been formally involved in a political party on in terms of left-right, and I suppose I'm pragmatic in the way that I vote. Um, I think that that says something, it might say any number of things about me, but I do think that what's changed is that over the last two decades in particular, the main political parties have become pretty technocratic and not ideological, which to be honest means that although they're forever squabbling and fighting, the substantial matters of principle aren't really there. And so I suppose I'm associated with um, free speech and so on and and issues around freedom and individual autonomy. That's kind of philosophically where I come from. And these days people think that's on the right, but that's sadly because the left has abandoned the field. I mean, there's nothing, you know, historically actually, you know, being pro-free speech was a radical position and was a challenge to a pretty conservative establishment that wanted to censor. But as you'll know, these days things are very different. So the political landscape, I would say is unhelpful to describe in the old, using the old terminology. And so therefore I never know what to call myself. Yeah, I, th- I think it's quite interesting um, for me, especially sort of looking at the way you sort of present yourself and your views. Um, and in my opinion, it's quite interesting in the way you present it in terms of the old left, right doesn't mean anything. Cause I tend to agree with that. And I look at sort of politics nowadays and I see that actually the divide isn't between left or the old left and right. You know, you look at people on on the left, people like Paul Embry and uh, Glassman, who've sort of founded Blue Labour, and then pe- people on the right, uh, Nick Timothy and even Philip Blonde and other people on the right, and actually divides, and, and actually they have more in common than they have difference, but one considers himself on the right and the other considers themselves on the left. But on the important matters which 
are now becoming prevalent, which is, you know, freedom of speech, woke culture, democracy, nationalism, or, you know, the nation state versus globalism. That's really where the divides are. And people from the left and right have actually come together to debate those issues. And I think that's actually where the divides are now. I don't, I don't know what you think on that. Yeah, I mean, all of those people are people I know on exactly that. You know, I think that in the most recent history, that kind of new divide emerged around Brexit most profoundly. I mean, I, I'd been going on about it for a long time. And maybe just as you've asked about the kind of history of it, you know, when the, the, the Revolutionary Communist Party had a magazine called Living Marxism, and when the Revolutionary Communist Party closed, it then uh, launched a kind of beyond left and right current affairs magazine called LM magazine. And I was the co-publisher of that magazine. So I kind of had never, although I was in the Revolution Commerce Party, I had a job. I just was a normal, you know. And then I kind of took a year out to launch this LM magazine um, when actually my, my PhD bid was, uh, you know, I realized I didn't want to do a PhD basically. So I ended up doing that. Um, and uh, the magazine got sued for libel. So in a way, my life got taken over in a very different kind of way. But the reason I'm saying that is because even back then with kind of Blairism, the end of May, John Major, the start of Blairism, we were saying this is a new technocratic era beyond left and right. And therefore, beyond left and right, what kind of principles should we be organising around? So that was a very long time ago. And I suppose that's always been the attitude that I've, adopted in terms of the academy of ideas but you know fast forward i think brexit brought that to the fore much more and people would just begin to see people like glassman and myself and Embry and all these people just exactly what you're saying but as you'll know because bad habits you know die hard as it were you know it, people just could not accept that there were people on the left who were going to vote to leave the European Union, even though historically that, again, been perfectly, you know, honourable left-wing position, Tony Bennett, etc., Peter yeah. Shaw. And so I immediately, I mean, immediately, you know, people will tell you that I'm far right. And one of the reasons is because of that. I mean, far right, no, not even right, far right, yeah. You know, but that was because of the Brexit party, maybe. But, you know, you've got this kind of inability to go beyond tick box politics. Mm. Everybody just wanting to give you a label, not accepting in good faith what you think. And so for Oscar, I totally agree with you that I have given up with that. I now look for allies. Mm. And sometimes those allies are just on a particular issue and then I'll disagree with someone or something else. And sometimes it's more profound than that. I think probably Morris Glassman and I would agree on, you know, maybe 70% stuff, not everything, but yeah. But then there will be people, it is true, who historically see themselves on the right that I'll agree with as well. And I just think, oh, who cares? You know, the issues are what matter to mm. me, not the labels. But in order to close you down, too many people who are my erstwhile peers on the left use the label right wing, move to the right, because it's the only, because they, because they have this kind of suite of opinions that they associate with the left or a suite of opinions they associate with the right. And they kind of do guilt by association. And it's a way of avoiding talking about the, 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 the very thing that we should be talking about. Mm, absolutely. And I wanted to add as well, in your own words, um, why do you think there wasn't a larger 
kind of left-wing Eurosceptic movement than what happened with the Brexit results. What, how, how comes you think there were more people on the left that voted Remain as opposed to leave, in your own well, words? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, this is kind of organised lefties. I mean, you've got to remember millions of work-class people who have historically voted Labour voted to leave, right? So mm-hmm. if you want the kind of, you know, we're talking about the, the well-known people. But mm-hmm. um, I recently did a podcast film thing with um, Owen Jones in lockdown, which was a moment of madness. But anyway, I did. And... Um, <laughs> You know, he he just couldn't. But he but the reason I'm saying that was because I said to him then, you know, he uh, Owen Jones, Paul Mason, quite a number of those type of people were absolutely railing against the European Union in relation to Greece and austerity and rightly so. Right. And I actually rather naively thought, my goodness, at last, you know, kind of emergent, explicit, open Euroscepticism emerging on the left, and they've got the courage to say so. And it was Yanis Varoufakis and all the rest of it. And then, then they just lost their bottle, and they lost their bottle because they basically thought that, oh God, now that the referendum's been called, will the right be associated with leaving the European Union? Will it be seen as a UKIP vote? Um, oh, it's all very confusing, and they just lost their bottle. And I mean, obviously, the greatest exemplar is um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, because I had very little in common with Jeremy Corbyn, but I've known him for decades. You know, we've been on the same demonstrations. We've been on the same much. And the one one of the few things that he and I would have agreed on was on Europe. And he was the leader of the Labour Party. And, you know, I think we can all surmise that he probably voted to leave. Right. um, You know, that's where his heart was. But he didn't have the courage to say it. And I, I so I, I, there's that. The, the left, you know, when you say, so that was a lack of courage. But the other thing is, is that sadly the left, such as the organised left in this country have for a long time now been, have given up trying to organise popular resistance and have become themselves more and more technocratic. And the EU is a kind of perfect vehicle for them so you know the trade union movement is less likely to organize a strike and more likely to cite some eu law i mean we're not in the eu but they're still doing it actually but you know Mm. cite some eu law or go to the uh, european court of human rights or you know it's almost like an abandonment of mass politics basically and and an increasing disdain for the working class basically they don't they don't trust because they don't get it you see so you know if you want to feel at home you talk about woke up you want to feel at home with people who you know that are going to agree with you you know you just wander into the european parliament in strasbourg and they're all kind of of a mind yeah and people almost like felt more at ease there you know they were our kind of people and uh, you know actually i hated it when i was there but but I can see why, because, you know, they were anti-racist, they were going to be saying all the right things on, on, on gender, on climate and so on. So they just couldn't break from it in the end. And it was a, it was a historic error of judgment. It's, it's basically ensured the demise of the Labour Party. I think it's over for them. And this will have been the catalyst. It wasn't the only reason, but it will have been the catalyst. Well, this is the thing. So if you go back to the 70s and you go back to, as you mentioned, Tony Benden, likes of Peter Shaw and Michael Foote. And I think in that era, there was a clear definition 
of what it was to be left wing. And actually what it was to be left wing was all the things that was opposite of the European project. It was pro-democracy or, you know, better phrase, pro-people power and pro, you know, mass demonstrations, that type of thing. It was anti the movement of capital freely. And those two things aligned and, you know, uh, democracy at the lowest point it can possibly be. And those two things aligned really was what it meant to be left wing. It was giving ordinary people the maximum amount of power that they have through both the ballot box and through the economy. And my opinion, this sort of ties into, you know, whether you left the left or actually just the left left you, um, that the whole left has completely shifted and done a whole complete U-turn and abandoned what they've stood for, for, you know, as centuries and moved on to this new agenda, which brought about or accelerated by Tony Blair um, and how that sort of ties into um, sort of modern day and whether the left now or even sort of competent to actually give their own views and voices to the millions of working class people which still hold those views from the 70s and from the 80s and people from that generation. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, we also have to remember that this isn't just a parochial moment. You know, one of the most profound things that happened to the left was that that um, the uh, Stalinism collapsed. Now, the reason why that was significant was not because everybody on the left was a Stalinist, the very opposite. I mean, I came from a Trotskyist position, but I mean, you know, these things are the finer points of, 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 of left-wing politics. But, but what I mean was Stalinism, the whole of the uh, Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc represented a challenge to capitalism. You know, that was a kind of, that defined post-war politics, right? And it had been a, a um, you know, and many intellectuals will, would have supported the Russian revolution. And even when Stalinism was so obviously a corrupt, hopeless system, didn't work, it, it represented a challenge that meant that capitalism had to keep itself on its toes because you had this alternative, you know, and, 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 and you know, the Cold War was fought on that premise. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of the left internationally just kind of got left or didn't know what to do, right? And as Margaret Thatcher famously said, there is no alternative. And at first the capitalist class were delighted because it kind of was like, we've won, right? We've won. They quickly realized that actually without an enemy, it was quite tricky because they didn't keep themselves on their toes because they they no longer, I mean, they the, the reason why the the, the the establishment developed ideas around freedom so co reasonably coherently and funded a lot of projects in relation to free press, academic freedom, artistic freedom and so on post-war was as an alternative to the Soviet Union because we were the free world and they were the unfree world. That would be the way they'd see it. Um, and then, you know, basically when there's no unfree world to compare yourself to, they decided they forgot to fight for freedom. So they abandoned the, the arena, you know, kind of left. And very quickly when they said there is no alternative, it didn't lead to a kind of flourishing uh, economic renaissance. It led to a technocratic, soulless, ideology-like political system in which they couldn't mobilise people. So the reason I'm saying that is because I think that the left, you know, and, and also the working class was broadly defeated. I mean, the miners' strike is, in the UK terms, a symbolic situation where collective working class agency was squeezed out of politics, right? And the combination of those things meant that historically you basically that was kind of the end of an era. 
and a new era is emerging, but nobody knew what it was. And you can't just wish it into existence. And you can't just carry on being the old left either, by the way, which is my argument with Paul Embry. You can't just kind of like want to go back. Oh, can't we go back? I mean, you, you, you have to be prepared to say the world changes and, and it has changed. And I think the reason I think that Brexit was an optimistic moment was it was the beginnings of uh, uh, where, where ordinary people started to assert themselves on the historic stage again for the first time. They'd kind of been completely squeezed out, right? Everyone just like was doing to them because the technocratic mindset is we look after you. You don't bother your pretty little heads. We know what's best for you. And they did that, right? But as a consequence, they just completely destroyed any semblance of kind of self-organization, civil society that meant anything. Trade union just become an empty shell of themselves. Anyway, that started to change. That's what populism is. Populism is the is the seething frustration of being treated like dirt, like you don't matter, that your voices don't matter. And it's erupted in different countries in different ways, and it's erupted here. So in that sense, the Labour Party just look on this and they haven't got a clue what's happened. I mean, they just don't understand it at all. They just don't get it. And they go, oh, young people, they're woke, we'll say something woke. And they, 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 they patronise, but they don't understand it at all. So they can't repair it. That's the point. We wanted to uh, talk about as well free speech. And in fact, the state of free speech in the UK as well, with the rise in non-incident hate crimes. Obviously, the hate crime bill up in Scotland, which is very controversial, uh, where your own spouse can even get you arrested at the dinner table for saying something that they don't agree with necessarily. So what do you think, Claire, the state of the UK in terms of free speech? I mean, me and Oscar have our own opinions on that, but we wanted to get your take. What do you think is the, the current state of it? It's, it's pretty grim, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, pretty, it's grim. pretty grim. <laughs> um, the, um, well, I, I suppose a couple of things to, so to not just sort of be over cliched, I mean, I hate the expression. I hate the word woke. I mean, it's yeah, it's like, yeah, word. it's horrible word. That is why I, I don't, it, it's, you know, yeah. it comes to shorthand. But anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, the state of free speech is very seriously undermined because nobody's fought for it for a long time. And, you know, I am glad to see the free speech union emerge in various sort of kickbacks. But I think both left and right have abandoned really developing a critique. And one of the things is people assume that if you just say, look, what about free speech? That people will somehow click into going, oh yeah, it's a free speech issue. Whereas these days it's like, well, what's the point of free speech if I feel psychologically harmed or what about yeah. my identity and so on? So we haven't developed sufficiently robust um, uh, arguments to fight for free speech. I mean, I wrote a short book on this issue, trying to tackle that. The Academy of Ideas have just brought out a whole series. We're just bringing out these um, pamphlets every month called Letters on Liberty. And the, the idea is to kind of, you know, kind of uh, pastiche of the pamphleteering moments of, the, of, of the, the, the English Civil War and radical moments like that. But they're kind of like two and a half thousand, three thousand word essays. And the challenge that we set people when we ask them to write them is to come up with new arguments for freedom on issues that so that we can't we can't just keep getting out JS Mill and repeating ourselves all the time. And so that's the that's one of our problems. We've seen during lockdown that 
you only have to say um, safety is more important. Safety trumps uh, freedom now in every single instance. Now, we'd already seen that with, you know, terrorism bills and all the rest of it. If you look at the, um, you know, during the pandemic as well, we have to stop misinformation because it will lead to lives being lost because people become all become mad anti-vaxxers. So information and free, free thought is now kind of considered dangerous. That's the point I'm making the association. And we'd already seen that with the safe space movement in universities, which was we need to be safe from dangerous ideas. And the idea of harm that was first put forward by J.S. Mill in a very narrow, particular way has now been broadened out to psychological harm uh, and this idea of harms. So you've na named some of the big acts. I mean, what's coming up in the U in UK general legislation is the online safety bill called the online safety bill um is as draconian if not more so than the scottish uh, hate crime bill let me tell you but it's got a lot of things in there which everyone will say is marvelous because it's protecting children and you know blah 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 but when you actually look at it it's really scary and the 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 fact that the cons you know the conservative government has brought forward the academic freedom bill um, which, you know, I don't want there to be legislation to guarantee free speech on campus, but it's, it's got so desperate that all the free speeches I know are welcoming that bill. And I, I, I'm slightly preoccupied with legislation in a way that I've never been in my mind because now I've discovered I'm a legislator, I have to take it a bit more seriously because I can't just blame <laughs> everyone else because I now have a role in it. But, you know, legislatively, it's terrible but the reason why the uh, the academic freedom bill won't work is because actually this is cultural. You know, you it, it, this is there's a, a it, I, I'm glad the government are at least giving a leadership and saying this matters. That's good. We could do with more of that. But you know, it's the cultural way that everybody just wants to close down free speech. And my final thing is the only good thing that's happened is when I used to go on about all this stuff, it was most acutely witnessed on campus and therefore notice you know if you went to you know you went and chatted about this to people in Bolton or stop oh, there's a bunch of namby-pamby you know snowflake students you know we're all right you know and all the rest of it the one thing that the lockdown uh, period that we've been through has done particularly because of what happened with Black Lives Matters in the middle of it all is that some of these things which looked like they were confined to student uh, 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 fringes have burst into into popular culture and whilst I don't mean I'm glad they've burst into popular culture because now as we can see they're dominating sports for example you know uh, yeah. uh, one of the most popular fields at least everybody knows what you're talking about you know so now if I go and talk to to, to people who voted for the Brexit party in the northwest you know and I say the statues issue, they don't go, what are you talking about? If I say critical race theory, they know what I mean. You know, yeah. they're kind of familiar with it. They understand there's an issue around turfs and trans issues. They've kind of got the gist. And that at least gives those of us who care about these issues an opportunity to argue. But as you will have seen, it also means because of the climate that you can be cancelled as well. What is what do you think is the solution? To all of this what I, I know we could easily say roll back legislation but is there anything else that we could do um without rolling back legislation we've got, is there a we've way? got a war that is what you know you see 
we have a festival at the Academy of Ideas called the Battle of Ideas Festival, which you must come to, by the way, and come oh. on a press pass and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, I'd love Interview that. people, right? But anyway, yeah. as an aside, um, the <laughs> Battle of Ideas Festival, it's called the Battle of Ideas. We've been doing it for, you know, 15 years, and we've obviously had to have a year off. We've been doing it all online, but back in back to real life on on uh, <laughs> July the, the 17th is the first one, and then we have a big festival in London as well in October. It's called the Battle of Ideas because, in a way, it's a battle of ideas. I mean, culture wars has itself become a phrase that's a bit like woke that's been hijacked. But actually, we did have a website called Culture Wars. In other <laughs> words, there is, there has to be a battle, and the battle of ideas was always, you know, you can't, you you can't. It's not just rolling back legislation, although God knows I want that, and I don't want more legislation. But you've got we've got to argue about it every opportunity, every one of these things. But we've also got to avoid two things. One is tit for tat cancelling because that happens all the time. People who are pro free speech are so fed up of people who are pro free speech being cancelled that they then kind of try and get, I don't know, Ash Sarka banned mm. from somewhere. You know yeah. what I mean? Or I'm just using her as an example because that was one sure. I got involved in defending her. People saying she doesn't deserve it. She sells herself. She's always trying to get people sacked. It's like, yeah, but the answer is not trying to get her sacked. Yeah. You know, this is not the point. And the other problem is, we have to choose our battles sometimes. So the example of the picture of the Queen in the Oxford common room seems yes. to me to be utterly ludicrous that free speech has wasted so much time on that. Because to be honest, I didn't care. I mean, some students voted to put up a picture of the Queen a few years ago. I mean, what kind of students vote to put up a picture of the Queen? I mean, what was that about? Presumably they were kind of like being... You know, they thought that was kind of like radical, man. You know, like that there'll have been free speeches of a particular type who think that inviting Katie Hopkins to speak is like the way to fight. And you just think, oh, grow up. And then some other students vote <laughs> to take it down, right? And so they then take it. And everyone then starts saying, this is woke culture gone mad. They're trying to cancel the Queen. Oh, for God's sake. That discredits our side. That's the point I'm trying to make. Much more serious is the 150. Uh, uh, tutors from Oriel College who've said that they're boycotting the college if, if Cecil Rhodes statue is not removed. Much more serious is Lisa Keogh in Abertay University who was disciplined because she actually said that women have vaginas in, in a seminar on feminism and then mm. got disciplined or the teacher training student who absolutely correctly said at uh, Manchester Met well, you know, I'm teaching religious studies. Are you going to defend me if I showed a picture of the Prophet Muhammad to sure. illustrate blasphemy? And sure. instead of the university saying, let's have a chat about it, they sent it for a disciplinary hearing. Yeah, which is I mean, outrageous. It's they, absolutely outrageous. They are the issues, not the, whether you're hanging a picture of the Queen. So we, we have to be careful that we don't create uh, a kind of anti-woke, glib, echo chamber, the caricature of the free speech side that, that, that the likes of Owen Jones would like to think exists, but doesn't generally, but can, I think, be a temptation. It's much harder than just shouting, you're a snowflake at people. I think you hit, hit the nail on the head earlier on when you said that um, with the Conservative Party currently trying to put in legislation, thinking that will help. It doesn't. It is purely cultural. It come, it's the bottom up. That, that is the real issue. And I always class it as I think that uh, the people at the top, be it the Labour or the Conservatives, in actually in any part of sort of politics, they're managerial. So they'll 
they'll think, okay, we've got a problem with sort of the healthcare system. We'll just throw money at it. We won't actually look at the structures. And it's the exact same as what I find with the, uh, the battle for freedom of speech and that type of thing. They just think by pumping in legislation, that's what's going to solve the issue. When you can pump in as, many leg- as much legislation as you want, the people that have to live under those legislations, they'll still have the same ideas. They'll still think in sort of these anti-free speech um, echo chambers. They'll still think that these legislations are bad and rally against them. So actually it makes no difference in my opinion. And I haven't quite worked out how to sort of go from the bottom up. How do we sort of from a grassroots level, uh, and I know you're doing sort of great things with sort of open debate and that type of thing, but reach more people, especially young people, because I think they're actually the bigger issue. People my age, you know, I go to university and and um, and I can tell you that it's awful. It's horrendous. You say one thing and, you know, and you get kicked out of a flat, you get kicked out of a flat for saying something that, you know, people disagree with. How do we get young people to actually buy into the values which, you know, be it left or right, have lived under for the last centuries? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, you have to try a million things. Uh, I, I, you know, it's just it's hard work, right? So a couple of initiatives that I'm aware of, um, that the, there's a thing called the Free Speech Champions, which is just set up, which you, if you're not involved, you should get involved in. Um, which uh, some colleagues of mine are doing um, involved in. And it's like the Free Speech Union and, and also some colleagues of mine from a, a, a charity who run a thing called Living Freedom. Living Freedom was something which I initiated, but which now kind of gone out of my hands, which is basically a, a, a weekend residential, just going through all this stuff for anyone, you know, for young people. I mean, these are young people initiatives, right? These are aimed at and organized by, <laughs> for the reasons you've just said forming in other words a network of people so that across universities we're not just universities that just people are getting the learning the best arguments working out how to do solidarity you know setting up uh, all of these kind of things right there is no easy solution oscar I, i mean culture change is a big thing but you know every single time historically that movements have emerged it's because you know people start them and you just have to talk about it everywhere and 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 but the difficulty is it's not a question of saying you know get yourself kicked out of college to do it you know that's the problem it's not like an individual voice but it is forming alliances with people and making these arguments as formally as as much as possible in the formal sphere you know you're right about legislation though and this isn't a free speech issue but it's an illustration of the kind of problem we confront the government have basically removed legislation from stopping visitors to care homes. So this is at the other end of the spectrum, right? And they've now just got guidance and the guidance has lessened and there's been some horrendous things happening in care homes, people not being able to see their loved ones and all of this because of the pandemic. Even though the legislation's been rolled back, right? The care homes won't let anyone in or a lot of the care homes won't because what's happened is they've developed, they've internalized the risk aversion right and that's the problem we've got with free speech you can say it's against the law to ban a speaker but that's not really confronting the issue the problem is people have internalized the idea that speech is harmful Mm. and scary and something they should be frightened of so legislation can sometimes act as a as a um as a as a kind of weather vane or you know it can be it can be used as messaging service 
although I disapprove of that use of legislation, but it can be, but it certainly won't be sufficient. And that cultural question, so I just want, I just go, I speak at every university I'm asked to speak at, I speak at every sixth form, I mean, not just me, and I'm just trying to get everyone to do the same. I think we just need to have this debate out and we need to be, you know, we shouldn't just like let people forget what happens at Batley Grammar School, right? That is, you know, blasphemy law by the back door. And it hasn't been resolved just because they've said you can come back to teach. They said you can come back to teach, well, you must never use that image. I mean, he's not going presumably he's not going to go back there because he'd be frightened to. But, you know, mm. we've got, and no politicians defended him, right? No one. No. Um, we've got, every time these issues happen, we can't just like let them get resolved. We've got to keep going on. And I, I'm in a very privileged position because I have access to you know, media and airwaves and speeches, but I just want everyone to do it. And the more and more of us who are doing it, the better it is. And then we've also got to be prepared to argue with our opponents, as it were. I don't know if you've read Andrew Doyle's book. Yes. Uh, yes. Well, what, one of the things that's admirable about Andrew's book, yeah, good. One of the things that's admirable <laughs> is he tries to, in that, argue with people who are anti-free speech. And I think that we should be, we have to be careful about writing people off because that's the other thing is I know a lot of my colleagues will just say, as I've said, you know, they'll just kind of go, oh, all these students are snowflakes. Well, that's not good enough, is it? You, you, we've got to appeal to them and say, do you really want to be frightened like this all your life? You know, yeah. look at the, think of the positive arguments for freedom of thought and freedom of speech get smarter at doing that. And I'm an old woman, you've got, a, we need new generations of people to do this. Yeah. Um, so it's your fault, your responsibility. <laughs> it is well, my millennials, generation. Millennials are awful anyway, and I can speak on behalf of all of them. Um, I don't usually do that, but yeah, in my opinion, they're, they are terrible and they're weak pussies in my opinion. Um, so yeah, and I say that lightly. <laughs> but, um, but I genuinely mean this. I think that people very often, you'll know this, a lot of people, I go and talk at student unions, people kind of come rushing up to me after and say, well, I really agree with you, but they can't say it, you know, it's like... That yeah, the that's Brexit the problem. Thing. No, I know, but the point is, they feel intimidated about saying it, right? right? I have more sympathy. I understand that. What I'm saying is, I don't think it's... You know, I think what you've got, what we've got to do is to show that there's more people out there who think this than people sure. realise, Right. So you meet people at universities. I now keep going on about the Brexit thing, but it was such a good example. So many people mm. at university voted leave, but nobody knows they did because they never told anyone because mm. they were frightened because it was a culture that if you ever said you voted leave, that they'd think you're a racist for us. Racist, right? that was it, xenophobic, right? yeah. yeah. I once sat in at a dinner at Cambridge University where I was doing a speech and the girl next to me whispered and said, I'm a left, I'm a left wing leaver. I'm a, you know, I wanted you to come here all this, right? Like big secret. I then turned to the other guy on the other side and he says, I'm in the Lib Dems. I voted leave by the way, but no one knows. I then wow. made them, I then, I then, I basically, you know, they, I, I kind of exposed them, right, to each other. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, but the point was, they're mates. They're yeah. mates. Yeah. And they had never admitted to it. This was two years after wow. the vote. Right, they hadn't said it to each other. Anyway, what well, luck it was a match. I did a good job of they. They then ignored me completely and went off walking into the distance, chatting Brilliant. about why they hadn't told each other. The point I'm making is, I think there was probably more people around that Cambridge dinner table. That, but the only people who were out of out who had voted Tory at Cambridge at that 
dinner that I was at were some rather, uh, you know, caricatured Tory types. Mm-hmm. Jacob so Rees-Mogg. Yeah, types. Jacob <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so you can understand why these two quite progressive people didn't really want to admit it in that company, but they had both voted leave. Interesting. This, this is sort of going back to, to what we were saying before, that there, the left-wing argument for leave is incredibly strong. It, it should be so prevalent, uh, and, it, and it was before. The whole thing changed because the rhetoric, in my opinion, from the left, it changed from sort of going from the people and, and believing, what, what, you know, in pro-democracy, pro, um, you know, economic freedom for people and more sort of economic prosperity for the individuals to this insane culture of individual freedom. But what I say goes and I have the arrogance to impose what I think on everyone else and whoever else sort of disagrees is, 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 you know, you know, the, the phrase is bigoted and racist and, and that type of thing. And it's a complete U-turn on what the left has always stood for. And sort of, I find it fascinating that the left now, the Tony, the, the Tony Blair post left is almost, you can't recognize it from the Tony Benn, the Peter Shaw left. I think that if you put Peter Shaw into this Labour Party, you'd probably get cancelled. He would, he would oh, not yeah. fit into this party at all. And that's sad, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that thing that the, the profound change was that when I was saying, you know, that the working class got, you know, defeated, the minor strike in the UK, but it happened sort of everywhere in that whole kind of period, um, just before Blair, that kind of that kind of historic period. And people didn't know. The, the, the problem was, was that by that stage, even, people in the Labour Party and the trade union leadership had more, more or less gave up on the working class, right? And kind of thought they were hopeless. You know what I mean? They kind of started, you know, and they didn't, they, they, and they started to look to other social forces. So that was kind of like the rainbow alliance. So maybe we, maybe we won't kind of look to ordinary people because they're all sort of a bit uncouth and unsophisticated and, you know, not, you know, so maybe, maybe, oh, look, and that's where identity politics emerges because people then start to have this sort of way of saying, well, we can have collective action around, uh, uh, you know, women's groups or, or LGBTQ plus, blah, blah, and so on and so forth, right? So you started to get this. And I think that once, at, at, at the same time, they developed a contempt for the working class. I mean, my, my view is, is that the Labour Party... When you talk to Labour Party people, they don't like working class people. They don't like them, right? I mean, it's like, it's, that is a gross generalisation on my part. But, <laughs> but, but what I mean is when they were saying, look at these kind of deplorable racists who are voting leave, they were just looking at ordinary people and thought they were racist, right? Well, why did they think that? There was no evidence or indication of that. Of course, there are racists in the working class, racists everywhere, right? Well, they're a small minority in this country. Right. And, you know, deal with them as you as you come across them. Right. But the idea that you have this kind of sneery attitude of what are these people like? Look at them. You know, they haven't got with the programme. Do you know what I mean? And it's still going on. And I mean, I noticed that Paul Mason has been really starting this thing, but he's not the only one uh, of basically saying of redefining who the working class are. So they basically try and say, oh, that's an older generation from the North. I mean, millions and millions of people 
older generation, you know, the young new working class are IT workers in Camden, you know. And of course, that's it's not a sociological matter. And I'm not trying to romanticise people with flat caps and living in northern towns. And let me tell you, there's plenty of people who are quite competent at using IT who are young in Bolton, in Stockport, in anywhere else. Right. So it's patronising all sorts of ways. But what they're trying to say is we don't recognise those people as our own. They've got no instinctive, intuitive recognition of, of ordinary people. And I don't think that's because they're, they're, they're not working class. It's because of politics. That's what I'm saying is they, they, don't, they just despise the values that those people uh, espouse. And so that's why I don't think they can get their, get their mojo back. Do you think the Labour Party, from what you're saying, and, and sort of the people that are prevalent, very prevalent in the Labour Party and the Labour Party movement, do you think there's any way back for that party? Because they, they've, you know, they've, I think they've also got it very tough because, you know, they also they have a huge leave following, but they also have a huge remain following. Um, but in my opinion, when you look at the likes of Starman, and you look at the people that are actually in charge, what they've done is they are these sort of metropolitan remain second referendum type guys who are trying to portray themselves now post 2019 as these this sort of patriotic blue labor pro-family pro-working class um these these figures like that but no one believes them this thing no one believes no, they don't believe them but they're right aren't they look look think of a few sort of high profile things that happen you know Keir Starmer and Angela uh Rayner went on bended knee to honor Black Lives Matter I mean that picture will haunt them for a long time, right? Right, did that make everybody think, oh, they're real anti-racist? No, you just thought, you absolute snivelling, spineless, useless types who were doing that. So you're cynical about why they're doing it, so it doesn't come over as authentic. I mean, at least some of the footballers mean it, right? I mean, whatever we think about that, but at least some of them are kind of like, are actually militantly saying we support, but no, they were doing it, it's kind of, right, so that happens. You know, you can't then just drape a flag and hope everyone's forgotten that that had only happened a few weeks ago. Mm. But last week was Pride, this is Pride Month, right? And last week, Keir Starmer chose to go and do a film that they put out as the Labour Party, walking around a field. I mean, what he was doing in the field is unclear. <laughs> in which he basically came out as part of Pride Month to say that the Labour Party supported self-identification on the trans question. Now this is at the very moment when actually people are beginning to understand how divisive the, uh, the trans issue is in terms of women's rights. And many women have already left the Labour Party over this issue, but last week, last week, just at the time when people are beginning to understand what Stonewall has done to institutions, just at a time when there's a beginning to be kind of a popular understanding and by the way, I have to say this because I'm on a podcast. This has got nothing to do with showing uh, uh, or treating people who are trans equally. It's to do with whether you say that trans, that sex doesn't matter biologically, right? Oh, and and uh, without rehearsing it all, at the very least, what you have to say is there's been a, a free speech crisis created by this issue in which the people who've been silenced are traditional feminists, lesbian activists, many of whom were the backbone 
of Labour parties historically, because women are always the best organisers, boys, in case you don't know. <laughs> and they all left the Labour Party, right? And Keir Starmer last week decided to do this. Now, what kind of strategy is that, right? And I, I so I'm saying that because I think that they don't, they don't get it. And I, do I think for two minutes that Keir Starmer has woken up one morning and thought, oh my God, you know, I really feel as part of the fight for equality that we need to recognize self-ID. No, someone somewhere thought that was a good idea. He sounded like he was reading it off an auto cue badly. Uh, with the emphasis on all the wrong words, so it's particularly surreal. And people are just saying, well, that's it now, that's just the end. He's, uh, not because of what he said about trans, but because the idea that he didn't realise that this was like he'd walked on him into a minefield. So, sorry, that was a rant. No, no, it was a good rant. We really <laughs> enjoyed that. Um, we wanted to say as well about um, the prominence of Twitter and social media too, where we wanted to link it back into the, the recent story as well with, with Ollie Robinson, um, the famous cricketer who has been cancelled because he said something about eight years ago um, that was pretty inflammatory. Um, once again, an infringement on freedom of speech. Um, why is it, do you think, that people nowadays are being held to a kind of like a higher standard uh, and they, they're, being, they're being completely ostracised and cancelled for something that they've said or they, that's documented that they've said for a long, long time ago, but now it's all been cropping up later on, and it, it's been it's been this sort of almost war against how people are conducting themselves nowadays. I was explaining to Oscar earlier about how nowadays it's created this kind of like eggshell system where you're afraid to say and do things. And even if you if you apply for a job or if you get into politics, you have to completely destroy your old social medias in case there might be something that someone may disagree on. What's, what's your stance with that? How, how do you think we should reconcile with that? And in your opinion, what can we do to change that? Well, obviously, it's a really serious matter because it can be destructive of people's livelihoods and reputations but it it is just a free speech issue so although we've got mm. the technology that can do this this is exactly what we've said which is that people think that those words they impute into those words far more meaning than they had at the time for a start off so half the time these things are like people you know drunken larry and banter and Bad form, right? I'm not saying it, but that's like, and you know, in the in the sports world, you know, there's undoubtedly has been historically anyway a particular type of culture, just like actually in a lot of, you know, it's a bit like black humour amongst doctors who make jokes about dead bodies, right? Or you know, all that sort of stuff, right? It's like uh, it's not doesn't mean to say that I think it's like sort of clever or sophisticated. It isn't, but it's hardly meant to be, right? It's like a kind of and people, sadly, do that sort of thing on social media, the things that they do informally. And even if they don't do it on social media, these days you can be doing it informally with your mates and somebody's bloody taping it, mm, you yeah. know, or you're in a WhatsApp group and somebody leaks it. I mean, you can't even say that it's just that you were an idiot and tweeted it. These days you might not have been tweeting it, but somebody's got a tape recorder under the table. I mean, loyalty doesn't seem to exist. And that's happened amongst students. That's what happened at the Warwick University saga where they kind of leak the whatsapp groups 
Anyway, what can we do? I, I mean, the worst thing is that I, you know, if I'm talking to my loved ones who, who are young, you know, the advice is don't tweet stupid things because it's going to go badly. But I actually don't want to create a culture where people speak like algorithms or robots and sure. that they're constantly, you know, spinning in, in case it's interpreted in a particular way because the freedom to think out loud is incredibly important. Not so that you can make a prat of yourself on social media, but the general th thesis is if somebody says, well, you know, how do we deal with this pandemic or what will happen if only old people die? Well, are we allowed to say that? Or how do we deal with this? Or, you know, if you're running the country, if you're running a shop and you have to decide, you know, you need running anywhere, mm. I'm not just running it, you need to be able to go, what do you think about this? And you need to be able to say outlandish things that everyone else says, what a stupid idea. Because sometimes those outlandish ideas help you realise what the right thing is. And sometimes those outlandish ideas are genius ideas and they allow you to develop a new vaccine or something. You know, if you see what I mean, you have to be able to, to think freely without knowing you'll get cancelled if somebody interprets it in the wrong way. Anyway, the, the, the issue of... of Ollie the cricketer is just utterly depressing. Mm. And I think it's the worst thing is it's the establishment who have lost their bottle. Yes. You think that what they have to do is to accommodate to this. So actually nobody's demanding, who demanded that he got, I mean, why don't they just say go away when somebody yeah. said we found these mm. old tweets? What kind of yeah. a person was trying to find them for a start off? I mean, who is that? Who does that? But then they should just say, thank you very much for informing us. We've had a chat with Ollie. He was a prat. He said, sorry, moving on. He's a cricketer. We don't care. Right. But they don't. They panic. And then, well, and now you've seen the reason I've gone on about the football is because I'm outraged by Gareth Southgate. Because mm. I don't mind that the, the footballers, I mean, but I don't mind. I mean, who might? I mean, you know, if they want to take the knee, they take the knee. Right. But I similarly think if the fans want to boo, they want to boo. You know, you, you can get away with these gestures when there's no public there, but as soon as the public come back, they make their feelings known and football fans are not quiet. And they're basically saying, oh, get off your knees, right? Mm, yeah. And they're not saying get off your knees because we're racist scumbags. They're saying get off your knees, it's a stupid gesture. We're <laughs> fed up with it. We come to see the football, stop showing off. Yeah. And Gareth Southgate has actually turned this into a moralistic, I mean, you know, he's entitled to say what he wants, right? Yeah. But he's actually implied that if anyone disagrees with him, they are kind of like the UK version of the deplorables, you know, Neanderthals mm. who don't get it. And so it's always at the top that you see this happening. And with the assumption that there's a mass of people out there who he, they're trying to accommodate to. But actually, I think that the majority of people are sensible a minority are very vocal and the establishment are always trying to accommodate to that minority because they're very vocal and influential and the media class. And so we go back to a situation which is they're all talking to each other and everyone, all the, everyone else is like looking at them thinking, what are you talking about? And, and just one insight from the House of Lords. I thought the House of Lords would be full of like, you know, kind of old codgers. And... Anyway, God, it's more woke than your average student union. I mean, they spend the whole time being woke, right? They're utterly ridiculous. I mean, they, it's, I said that the, no, I mean, no, but they're not, they don't even understand. They're completely with the programme. 
you know, the environment oh. bill the other day was like being an extension rebellion meeting, right? <laughs> oh, Every no. se- 75 speakers and only two of us made any critical comments, two and wow. a half maybe. And the rest of them stood up and they were all one more. And when I said, something wrong with lacking the environment, it's not about climate change, this was about, but they were just not critical at all. It was just, they were all trying to outgreen each other. Oh. And exactly the same thing happens, you know, the, every discussion on women, I mean, it's just, it's, it's cringeworthy, right? Oh. And so what I'm saying is, is that there's a crisis in the people who run society, who because of technocratic, the period of technocracy are trying to find meaning for their institutions very often trying to give find a kind of mission what's the purpose and they go to the red the, the closest ideology that exists at the moment which is that of identity politics wokery that we don't like the phrase and a kind of uh, um you know yeah identity politics and the vulnerability all of these kind of you know memes that exist and that's what they they think and they think that's why you've got this thing called woke capitalism woke businesses because they think well how can we get all our employers to you know work on believe in the company and especially embarrassing because we're an oil company so we'll pretend we're not an oil company and we'll basically sign up as stonewall champions and we'll sign up as black lives matters champions and then everyone will love us again all the people who work for us they're all young they're bound to like it and everyone and all the rest of it and it's a way for them to avoid being held to account for what they either do believe or actually do or you know and and so on but actually it's an absolute con it's a disgrace I think that's a, especially the last point you made there about these sort of big multinationals trying to portray themselves as very much like Nike, for example, which is, I think, the best example where, you know, they'll put out this black, all these Black Lives Matter things with their athletes and whatnot. In the meantime, in China, they've got sweatshops where people are working basically slaves, which is incredible. Um, but I think one, one of the points with cancel culture or so-called cancel culture, which I think hasn't been said enough, is the pure arrogance of people that are cancelling sort of their fellow sportsmen and, and etc. So for example, if you take the England cricket star, the people that are cancelling them, so for example, Joe Root and, and the selectors, they've cancelled a guy because something he said in his past has become public. The only difference between what he's probably said in his past, because no human is, is perfect, and the other guy is that his is public. But he knows full well that he's got some stuff in his past. He just doesn't want it to come out. But he's quite happy to see his fellow teammate, his friend, to see his whole life completely ruined because it's become public. But he's trying to hide his own back, if you like, from his things from becoming public. I think the whole thing is completely screwed because human nature, we're naturally, uh, we naturally do stupid stuff. We naturally say stupid things. We do stupid things. And at the moment, what it looks like is everyone's hiding something behind them and pointing at someone else and say, look over there, look over there. And, and I just think it's so wrong and immoral of, of the whole society. And I just, I just think it's, it's awful as a country that we've got to the stage where we're looking at our fe- fellow yeah. citizens for their mistakes when we've done the same mistakes, maybe even worse. I agree. I mean, you're right. You've said it all. Um, the, the, the other thing is that, that, that I had a, this row with someone who, who disagreed with you and I on this and, her argument was, well, you know, if you don't want to get cancelled, my advice is don't tweet racist shit. It's like, why, why would you do that, right? Uh, which, you know, showed, showed 
but she can only thought it through. But 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 five minutes later, she called the people who were booing the footballers racists. So the point then was, so I said, oh, I see. So basically, they're all, that's racism. So now everybody, you know, think how many people this is going to mean they're racist now, right? And I pointed out that leavers were called racist, right? So mm. what I'm saying is you, we think we know what we're talking about, don't we? Because if somebody says to you, do you think that if you're a racist, you know, you know, you should be kicked out of the junior common room or your student union or, you know, you've got a problem. I mean, I, I, if you've ever met, which I have, you know, hardcore racists, right? They're a pretty grim crew. Mm. And, uh, and you know, when I was involved in trade unionism, we, we would have a kind of, uh, you know, where you, you kind of send them to Coventry. <laughs> no social media in them days. You know, like you kind of really would like, you know, you had some sort of, you know, just racist guy. You kind of just wouldn't talk to him. You kind of you wanted them to leave. It was a kind of our version of cancel culture. It's kind of <laughs> grassroots rank and file version. You know, just kind of we don't want your type to any, you know, just go away. Um, and, and similarly, you know, you got some obnoxious guy who was sexually harassing people, and you know, really horrible you know a lot of women it just kind of make their life pretty unbearable right we do all good to get rid of them right so you know there's that's true the problem we, we've got now is is that we've lost control of the language because now you can be called a sexual harasser or a sexual creep or whatever for things which are not that kind of person that i've just talked about but for minor infringements of some code of conduct that somebody else has imposed on you and racism has become such a catch-all phrase that we don't any longer. It doesn't have the force it had. And so when people say so-and-so is a racist, it feels like crying wolf because you just don't know any longer whether it's true. So, oh, you know, I've, I've had people told, oh, so-and-so is a racist. And I thought, thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I've met them and thought, oh, you are a racist. <laughs> right. No. Um, but, then there, but then broadly speaking, most of the people who are labeled racist, and, and that's the problem with transphobia, uh, Islamophobia, all of the different phobia, you know, all of the things you can be accused of. And these, it, it, I think, Oscar, you said, when you were just doing your little thing, you know, is this idea that that we have, the, we always have the most, we attribute the most malign motives to our fellow citizens. That is a real shift culturally. Mm. You know, we don't assume the best and we're therefore unforgiving and we always assume that they were, that they were, you know, malignly motivated. But, you know, I, I think it, it doesn't apply to everyone. You know, Prince Harry wearing a Nazi uniform, everyone's like, sort of, well, you know, obviously didn't mean that, right? I mean, he, you know, I mean, no, but I mean, presumably Meghan doesn't think that he should be canceled <laughs> on the basis of something he did stupidly when he was young. And she doesn't think he's a racist or a fascist because he married him. So why has he got away with it, right? So in other words, it's not everyone. It, it kind of like you can be unlucky and it just falls upon you. And I think you're probably right that there's a few people who are kind of pointing the finger in the direction of someone else. Well, the, the most, I'm just glad social media didn't exist when I was young. You know? The most recent one is, is Hunter Biden who came out with uh, who yes. text messages have come out where he's used the N-word in text. And it's like that is in some respects a lot worse than what Ollie uh, Robinson said. But I haven't heard one thing out of sort of mainstream media. I mean, imagine if that was Donald Trump Jr. Oh, yeah. can you imagine? It would be, it would be, it would be a completely be hell on media. earth. And I think you're right in saying that actually a lot of it is about how 
the establishment. I don't really like using that word because I think it has too many sort of connotations, but how sort of the mainstream media and sort of how they perceive you. And if they like you, then they can they think, oh, well, he's on the right side. He just made a mistake. But if they think that, you know, you're on the wrong side, then, oh, well, you've exposed yourself with a racist. I, I just, as you said, I, looking at your fellow citizens that way is just is horrendous. It, ha- it has the impact of chilling speech, because I think what inevitably happens is that people self-censor. And they don't self-censor in a way that they sort of go, oh, well, maybe I won't use the N-word then. They self-censor in the sense of constantly feeling they've got to check what they say in case somebody might interpret it in a particular way. And that's not a good thing. Um, I, I, I also think that, you know, that, that lack of generosity to people that, 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 we've just, that we've just talked about eats away and demoralizes people. You know, it's a kind of, it's a real rot at the heart of society. And I think that when we saw the, well, we're still seeing it, but at the height of it, when people were kind of, when curtain twitching and people reporting, people who've gone for a second walk during lockdown or weren't wearing their mask when they went to the corner shop or, you know, possibly had their elderly aunt round for a cup of tea when they weren't supposed to. The fact that there was so many people kind of saying, those people are dangerous, you know, it's part of that kind of, the rot that, 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 that's happening. And I, and I think that's, a, you know, it's a really uh, horrible thing. But politically, it, we have to really challenge it, which is it's used to delegitimize people. And it's a way of avoiding talking. I mean, if you, if you actually say, I mean, if you believed what people said about me on social media, then no, nobody has to engage with me because I'm an absolute monster, right? And so consequently, you, you know, and, and if, it, to be honest, you know, if, if if you said, well, you know, is it worth debating, you know, the ex-organiser of the British National Party? I mean, you know, I'd say no, I can't, you know, no, not really. Because there's certain things that you just think, no, I've been, life's too short to bother, right? And that's not, they're beyond, they're slightly beyond the pale, right? I'm not going to bother. And I don't mean by that that I wouldn't know, I just wouldn't think it was important. So if you categorise a whole group of people as being beyond the pale and to the far right and completely mad, you know, or conspiracy theorists or whatever label it is that removes them from the mainstream. What you do is you remove your obligation to engage with them because you basically say, no, no, they are the nutty brigade. And you know, there are lunatics about, right? You know, should I be engaging with people who think that 5G was cause of coronavirus? Or people who think, you know, I mean, no, I shouldn't, right? So, so I defend their right to be a lunatic, but that I would think of them. But if you cut, if you broaden out the category of who you put into the lunatic basket, that re- that that is really scary because I think on a re- a wide range of issues, p- people with perfectly legitimate concerns are put into the lunatic basket, mm-hmm. or they're called deniers. That's the other one, isn't it? Because that associates you with. Holocaust denial and so you know where you are on that one and this has become an increasingly prevalent way of avoiding arguing with people okay so that sounds like last orders to me so a quick final question for you Claire so you're at the pub okay what would be your choice of drink that you would choose to to purchase I'm notoriously a pint of Foster's person oh fair enough I was not expecting that no, that's, well, that's it, a when it's weak, I, well, I drink a lot of it when I drink it, and uh, <laughs> but but it, but it, but it's weak. <laughs> it's oh, that's weak. good. 
Is it good? Good? I find, well, usually this is greatly disapproved of because people say it's not real lager and everything. But anyway, they do right. say that, and it's not Australian <laughs> as well. well. I don't really uh, care. I just like it. Right. That's, <laughs> <laughs> really. that's a good answer. No, I'll give you that. Well, thank you very much for sticking around and for the upcoming episodes. You can send in your own questions for us as well. Be sure to check out our social medias via Instagram, Twitter and YouTube as well. And please check out Claire Fox as well. Thank you for joining us and thank you to Oscar. And once again, Claire, thank you very much for joining us on our (laughs) our podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Next time in the pub, eh? (laughs) Yeah, next time in the pub. Yes, I love it. Thank you very much.